0: So Money episode seven twelve. Dan Harris, co-anchor of ABC News Nightline, and author of the new book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a thirty-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
0: Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Question for you. Can meditation improve our finances, our careers? I've never tried meditation, but our guest today says, at least in his life, yes, meditation can do that and more. You may know Dan Harris as the co-anchor of ABC News Nightline and the weekend edition of Good Morning America. He's also the best-selling author of 10% Happier, and his newly released book is called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Dan's been very vocal about once having a panic attack in front of millions of people while filling in on Good Morning America. It was that experience that set Dan on a path to discover why he had a panic attack and embark on this journey of self-discovery, which eventually led him to meditation. Now, Dan admits he was an inspiration for his latest book. He is that fidgety skeptic, yet learned how to meditate. What is his practice like? How did it transform his life? And how can meditation benefit our bottom lines? Here's Dan Harris. Dan Harris, welcome to So Money. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. I think we connected years and years ago when I was launching a book, a book on, uh, Psyche yourself rich about the psychology of money. I think you might have interviewed me back at ABC, but, uh, fast forward to today, uh, you have many titles, including, um, you know, obviously, uh, co-anchor of ABC News Nightline, weekend edition of Good Morning America. You're also an author, a best-selling author. And so let's, first, before we get into all of that, I'd love to just hear about your day. How's your day going? Uh, Give us a (laughs) sense of a day in the life of Dan Harris. It's noon on a Tuesday. How's it going so far?
1: Today is uh, somewhat, (laughs) I'm I'm kind of embarrassed at what I'm about to say, but- Oh, good. uh, Today is somewhat unusual because it is Kind of a day off, maybe. Um, uh, one of the biggest issues in my life is that I I don't really get much downtime, um, uh, and, and I'm saying that with a sense of humor because I often describe my schedule as uh, drowning in chocolate. Like I love everything <laughs> I do, but it's still drowning. If you're um,
0: gonna drown in something,
1: yes. Yes, I mean it's awesome. I have so many great things I get to do. But anyway, so today I kind of made it a day off and so I did a very decadent thing this morning which is that I did back-to-back soul cycle classes. Ooh. Um, yes. That's and then I, I'm, fun. I'm I'm like the prototypical upper west side annoying yuppie. I I did back-to-back <laughs> soul cycle uh classes and then I had a sweet green salad. So it's it's pretty embarrassing.
0: Dan, I can relate. I can okay. Really, good.
1: Good. Good. You're, but but in, yeah. in, in my in my quasi defense, I am then going into many many hours of meetings, and uh, so uh, I will I'll be fortified.
0: Right. It's a balance. Yes. You're so. also a self described fidgety skeptic, which is part of the title of your new book, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. Would you say that meditation is also part of your downtime? Or it's work. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I do, I do, I, I, I build a lot of meditation into my, into every day. So even though I, I do, I do essentially work seven days a week, um, there is a significant amount of meditation sprinkled throughout the day so that I, I actually don't feel burned out. Um, there have been moments, especially actually during the writing of this last book where I, I did kind of burn myself out, but generally speaking, when I'm not in like crisis mode, which is is not often, um, I actually feel like I'm pretty energized. I'm doing, I'm incredibly grateful for the amount of awesome stuff I get to do.
0: Well, let's dive into meditation a little bit more. I understand that you were skeptical of this practice. How did you yourself find your way, your journey to meditating? And then also, how do you incorporate it into your schedule? Sounds like, aside from today, back-to-back soul cycle classes, you, you're busy. You're very busy seven days a week, as you said. So how do you make it work for you, and, and how can that be extrapolated for everyone else listening, myself included? I'm kind of a skeptic.
1: Okay. Well, so there were like two or three really good questions embedded in that question. So I'll apologize in advance that I'm probably going to give you a long answer, but I'll try not to make it too long. Go for it. Um, so the, the, the yes, you're exactly right. I was super skeptical about meditation i thought it was complete bullshit (laughs) to the extent that i even thought about it at all um i uh got set on the uh, path to meditation because i had a panic attack actually on national television back in 2004 you can look up look it up on youtube if you want um and uh the the result the, the panic attack was actually the result of some very dumb behavior in my personal life i had spent a lot of time in war zones as a as an ambitious young correspondent after 9/11 and um when I got home from that experience I got depressed and self-medicated with recreational drugs including cocaine and even though I was not doing it that frequently and I, I, w- I definitely wasn't doing it when I was on the air or when I was working um it was enough according to the doctor I later consulted to sort of artificially raise the level of adrenaline in my brain and prime me to have a freak out on the air so that created a lot of changes in my life. I I quit drugs. I started seeing the shrink on the regular. Um, it took several years after that, but I, I ultimately kind of stumbled through this stumbled onto meditation. And I was, as I said, of the view that meditation was completely ridiculous and for people who live in a yurt and are really into cat Stevens and stuff like that. And, and, but what changed my mind, um, what really changed my mind, and I am i am a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic, I'm a paid skeptic, you know, that is my job at work uh, at ABC News for 18 years now. Um, what really changed my mind was the science. There is, you know, the science is really in its early stages, but um, uh, but there's been an explosion of research into what meditation does to your brain and to the rest of your body and um, to your psyche, and it, it, again, while it's in its early stages, it strongly suggests that it can have all of these benefits like, you know, lower blood pressure, boosted immune system, literally rewiring key parts of the brain that have to do with attention regulation, you know, like distraction, um, emotional regulation, you know, getting carried away by your emotions, um, compassion, self-awareness. So really the compelling stuff. And um, so this was this was in like 2009. So it was like the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend. I was, I was, I started to meditate before it got cool. <laughs> and I noticed that it really helped me, uh, be calmer, uh, more focused, less yanked around by my emotions, um, uh, in a very competitive workplace. And, but I also noticed that there was, um, the books I was reading about meditation, while um, while very good, they were just a little bit annoying. It was like you could kind of hear a pan flute playing in the background uh, when you read these books. And so I I basically thought I, I had like an entrepreneurial itch, which was, oh, yeah, I, I should write a book about meditation, but I'll just use the word fuck a lot and um, <laughs> and put a lot of jokes in. And, and so that's what I did. And so my first book was called 10% Happier. And Mm -hmm. that book came out four years ago and then I wrote a follow-up you mentioned called meditation for fidgety skeptics and so the last question you asked was how do you fit into your day when you're super busy and so this is a huge issue for people and I one that I address in a big way in this most recent book um, because people the the time barrier is a huge barrier and I I have good news and even better news the the good news is that I, I think I started meditating with five to ten minutes a day, and I think that's a great uh, a great habit. Um and I've discussed it with many of the neuroscientists who look at what what uh, meditation does to the brain. and and the general consensus seems to be that five to ten minutes should be enough to get you help you you know derive the advertised benefits. And the better news is that if you feel like five to ten minutes a day is too much, and a lot of people do. Uh, i honestly believe that one minute is enough one minute counts and um i i think that it doesn't even have to be every day it could be one minute daily ish and why do i believe this because the whole goal of meditation is really just to knock you out of autopilot knock you out of the trances in which we operate the trance of insufficiency the trance of unworthiness the trance of whatever's happening right now isn't good enough so i need to get to the next thing these stories, these habitual storylines that actually just own us and and control us like sort of uh, malevolent puppeteers in meditation. You're just all you're trying to do is create. a. We can talk more about what exactly meditation is. But in meditation, you're basically just trying to create a collision between you and the voices in your head. Uh, and uh, that can happen in a minute. And you can knock yourself out of these trances in a minute.
0: I like to take naps during the day. I don't get to, but I whenever I get the chance to take even a ten-minute nap, I do it. And there's a lot of science behind the power of sleep and the importance of sleep. Different than meditating, but because you're not, your mind's not really. I mean, so well, what is the difference? I mean, <laughs> if it's easier for me to just take a quick nap, can I just do that and not meditate, or should I really entertain meditation for other benefits?
1: Well, let me just say, I am. Uh, in- just incalculably pro, pro sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am. Uh, I optimize my schedule to get sleep, and if I didn't get enough sleep, I will nap. I am strongly pro napping too. Um, and you're right. There's a lot of science that says if you're not getting enough sleep, you are you are you're degrading your performance. Um, and uh, there's science that says that a nap is really good for you. So no beef whatsoever with uh, sleep and napping um it it is definitely not meditation however um the the word buddha literally means awake so meditation is a uh, is a process of waking up
0: conscious knocking
1: yeah knocking yourself out of the slumber in which most of us operate where we just totally unaware that we have this nonstop conversation going in our heads all the time this voice in our head that chases us out of bed in the morning and is yammering at us all day long as it's constantly wanting stuff, not wanting stuff, comparing yourself to people, judging other people, judging yourself, thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever is of happening right now. Meditation is just a way to sort of uh, to see that this process is happening so that it doesn't govern you. And um, I think it's a great compliment. To getting enough sleep. Look, I am, when it comes to mental and physical well being, I am a maximalist. I, we know what works. We know that um, medication works. We know that uh, talk therapy works. Uh, we know that getting enough sleep, eating well, exercise, meaningful work, positive relationships. My argument when it comes to meditation is simply that it should join the pantheon of no brainer not that it should be done to the exclusion of anything else. I think you you know, we, you get one shot at being alive unless you believe in reincarnation, which I have seen no evidence mm-hmm. for. Um, so you might as well be as happy and as healthy as possible. And so there, we know what works. You should do all of it if you
0: can. You traveled the country with Jeff Warren, meditation teacher, to speak to everyday people about the myths, the misconceptions, you called it the self-deceptions that we have about meditating. Why does meditation get such a bad rap? Other than, of course, that we associate it with, I don't know, lighting candles, rubbing crystals, all of that sort of stuff. But I, I feel like now more than ever, at least in my lifetime, we're talking about meditation more than ever. It's resurged, yet there is this skepticism. So what is the disconnect?
1: So it's so interesting. I've just seen this cultural shift. Happened so when I first I started getting into meditation, I, I was it was my my friends were not supportive. People thought it was really weird, and it was, I basically had to hide it from people. And and um, I've seen in the last couple of years that the culture is shifting on this, and we've moved from a position of meditation being seen as you know completely ridiculous to now it, it is seen as aspirational because we see these members of the military, corporate executives, elite athletes, entertainers doing it. So it's become an aspirational thing. So now we're at a point in the culture where the problem isn't uh, that people think meditation is bullshit. The problem is that people think people know they should be doing it, but they're not. Um, And so you've got a whole new set of misconceptions and myths. I would say the most pernicious of these myths is, is the myth that meditation entails clearing your mind. I hear this all the time. People come to me and say, Yeah, I get it, Dan. Meditation is good for you, but you don't understand. My mind is so busy, I could never do this. Um and uh <laughs> the good news and bad news there is you're not special. You know, like welcome to the human condition. All of our minds are crazy. <laughs> I, I call this argument that people make to me all the time, I call it the fallacy of uniqueness uniqueness. People think that right. somehow we have this unique totally unique. No one understands what I'm going no one through. Does. We evolved to have a racing mind. We evolved on the savannas to uh, to look for threats um, and to look for sources of pleasure like, you know, food and and uh, sexual partners. This, this is the mind that evolution has bequeathed us. And um, uh, that is just the nature of the beast. Otherwise, we wouldn't need meditation. So the whole goal in meditation – I should just basically describe what – the kind of meditation I, uh, of which I'm a proponent in, in, involves. So I'm a proponent of something called medit mindfulness meditation, mm-hmm. which is derived from Buddhism, but is thoroughly secularized. Um, it, um, there's no religious lingo. There's no metaphysical claims. Um, and mindfulness meditation basically involves at the beginning, three steps. So you sit, the first step is you sit comfortably, close your eyes, um, your back reasonably straight, which can help, Ward off an unintended nap, although if you fall asleep, it's not a problem. Uh, the second step is to bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Uh, the pick one spot where it's most prominent, like your belly or your chest or your nose. And the third step is the key, because as soon as you try to do this seemingly very easy thing of just feeling your breath coming in and going out, your mind will go into mutiny mode. You'll start thinking about what's for dinner. Why did I say that dumb thing to my boss? Where did gerbils run wild? Blah, blah, blah. And the whole goal is just to notice when you've become distracted and start it again and again and again. And every time you do that, it's a bicep curl for your brain. This activity of noticing you've been carried away by the voice in your head and starting again, that is meditation. Meditation does not require you to reach some special state of this thoughtless void, this bliss bubble. Uh, <laughs> meditation is about seeing that you're distracted and starting again. As I like to say, if you sit and meditate and all of your thoughts evaporate, you're either enlightened or you're dead. The 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 point of – often people, when they sit to meditate and they notice that they're distracted, the, their voice in their head swoops in and tells them a whole story about how they're failed meditators. But actually, this is a victory. This is an awakening. This is you are waking up from this – this sort of inner cacophony of of this voice in your head, and in that moment you have a ton of power, which is like, oh yeah, this 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 these thoughts that are coursing through my head are, aren't necessarily true, and so I, you know, the thoughts that tell me I should lose my temper. Uh, in a conversation with my boss aren't necessarily true. The thought that tells me I should eat when I'm not hungry or check my email in the middle of a conversation with another homo sapien, these aren't necessarily <laughs> things that we need to do. And th- so this d- this activity of seeing or distracting and starting again is the thing.
0: Yes. And that,
1: I think, is when people know that that, it changes their view of the activity.
0: Visit simplysafe.com slash money. You'll get free shipping and a sixty-day risk-free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. To hear a friends talk about the benefits of meditation, often they use words like I'm more patient. I I have more clarity in my life. I'm um I'm not quick to react to things that I normally would have. And so I'm curious and my audience is curious about the impact meditation has on our ability to make decisions around money. Did any of of that come up in your research or has that benefited your personal finances in any measurable way?
1: Well, I don't know if there's, I mean, there's been so much research on meditation. I bet you could find some studies on, on meditation and what it, does to people's uh, ability to make economic decisions. I know, for example, it makes people more generous. Um, but in terms of wisdom as it pertains to personal finances, I bet you- I'll take generous. Studies. I like that. Uh, uh, um, yeah. That, that, those studies I have seen. Um, but in terms of uh, you know um, the green eye shade, I don't know. But I'll just speak from my own personal experience. So I, I found benefits, first of all, as it pertains to my career, Um, uh, So this isn't managing of money, but the managing of my career where my relationships are much more collegially at the the office. My ability to uh, bounce back after making mistakes has improved and uh, my ability not to take the stress of work into my personal life has skyrocketed. That is not to say I am perfect. That is perfection is not on offer here. I retain the capacity to to be a complete schmuck, but I'm much better than I used to be in all of the aforementioned areas. As it pertains to my personal finances, um, uh, you know, I think when the market is down, or you know, back in two thousand eight when when we saw um, a real um, a, a real scare in the market, I remember. Um, really freaking out about that—not only about the market, but also about what it was going to do to my to my job security, et cetera, et cetera. And now, when we see big dips um, or rumblings of some sort of um, recession or whatever, I, I notice that I'm 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 less carried away by um, just unconstructive bouts of nightmarish uh, inner projections, um, and so that that to me makes a big difference.
0: I'd like to go down even further memory lane about how money, how you established a mindset around money. I ask guests all the time about their ch- their childhood because it's not inconsequential, things that you experienced in your younger years and how you then uh, become an adult and manage your life as an adult. How, what's a money experience you had, Dan, growing up as a kid and how that showed up in your adult life later, a good or bad experience?
1: So my dad uh, created for me and my little brother something called a daddy bank when we were little, where he would give us money and small amounts of money. And then he created a ledger and we got to decide whether we wanted to keep it in the bank and earn interest or spend it. And um, and that was the formative of that for me was formative, like I could take out of the daddy bank and go to the candy store or I could watch it grow and uh I remember I wasn't particularly good <laughs> at uh so you like to spend it. it? I like this I like candy I like candy a lot. Um my brother who as it turns out has become a very successful venture capitalist was uh-huh. much better at um uh at uh, saving the money. Um and the fast forward interestingly to like when I was 32 and just so then the I would say in the early 2000s, when I was really starting to establish, establish myself at ABC News, and I had just signed a new contract, it was my first real sort of. I got in a big raise, and I was I was kind of feeling my oats, and I I was plan. I told my dad that I was going to buy a nice apartment in New York City, and he said, "Uh, I think you should look at your career more like a pro football player. It's so." You know, you're you're in television. It could be short lived. You know, it's so fickle. I think you should save your money. And I heeded his advice, and it has it has really changed the way I think about money to this day, which is that I'm really quite conservative. We live below our means. I don't want to spend time in the middle of the night fretting about whether we can make a mortgage payment or whether we invested in a summer house unwisely, So we I basically have removed those sources of stress to the best of my ability by not pushing the limits of our financial wherewithal, really just saving a lot of money and um, not, you know, living as large as we could, because I don't want those stressors.
0: I think that's really admirable. Although my next question, is sort of counter to that, and it's a question that is brought to us by our sponsor, Chase Slate. I love this question, though, because our money should we should save, but we should also enjoy our money. What is a book, a big ticket item that you, your family, is saving up for, if anything, right now?
1: Um, I agree that we should enjoy our money. I don't, I don't want to exist in a miserly fashion. So my um, my approach is that on the day-to-day level, my wife and I we don't really deny ourselves anything. So, cycle is not cheap, and but but it makes my my uh, makes in particular my wife very happy, and and I like to go with her, and um, and so we don't fret about you know the costs of that. What we don't what we in, on the bigger level though we haven't. You know, spent a ton of money on on a, on a huge apartment in New York City. We we rent, and it's we rent in a you know a, a, a um, not super fancy place. And we don't have a summer home. We instead we just like rent a place for a couple of weeks in the summer. So we, the the trade off is that on the day to day, we don't worry about the quotidian expenses. You know, we want to go to dinner, we go to dinner. We want to um, buy. If I want to buy a suit, I buy a suit. But we don't spend a ton of money on like uh, some a fancy car, fancy summer home, a fancy apartment, like a lot of people we know do. So that's kind of the trade off that we've existed on. So the, the the I find that for us it makes a a much more frictionless life.
0: Hmm. Well, it sounds too that you're more adamant about spending on experiences and stuff, and that is actually science proven that when we do that, we can increase happiness and going back to your first book, 10% happier. I don't know if you address that at all in the first book, but this is certainly what you're doing. It has a strong correlation to more fulfillment, big apartments, not necessarily going to do it after a while. You're going to want something bigger. And so there's almost no end to that.
1: Yeah. um, You know, you're getting me to think about this stuff in ways that I've never really thought about it, but I think that's exactly right. Um, I want our day-to-day lives to be enjoyable for us to not feel like we're having to not deny ourselves thing um, on the sort of moment to moment, day-to-day life. I don't want to be stressing about money all the time um, in service of having an apartment that maybe may have more square footage. It's just that trade-off I'm not willing to make. And I don't want the middle-of-the-night sweats over – uh, our finances. I, I, I just, that seems to me like optional suffering that I, I'm i going to say yes. no
0: to. Recently,
1: go ahead, please. I was going to say, pick up on something you were saying, but which was very wise that we, you get a big apartment and eventually the, um, the dopamine rush of having a bigger apartment wears off. This, you know, the scientists have a term for this. They call it hedonic adaptation. Mm-hmm. So we, we get something great, you know, a physical thing, and it feels awesome for a minute, but it wears off. That is, again, the mind that has been uh, bequeathed to us by evolution. Um, and and the Buddhists have a term for this, they call it suffering. So the, you, know, if you if you think if you think that you that you're going to get this next Latte. This next promotion. This next whatever. And it's gonna do it for you forever. You are gonna have a rude awakening. And and in this way, the pursuit of happiness, uh, or, or what we commonly define as happiness, can become the source of our unhappiness. And that is a key thing to know.
0: The Buddhists do not mince words. I love it. They just go. They just. It, it is called, what was it? Suffering?
1: Suffering. Yeah. Yes, yeah I yeah. mean,
0: <laughs> why beat around the bush?
1: The Buddhists are amazing. I mean, like I, I, I they, they are, they, you know, I, I am, I say this as an atheist, you know, I'm a, my parents are scientists. My wife is a scientist. I, I am, I'm a, well, I would call myself, I guess, technically an agnostic. I'm a respectful agnostic, but I don't believe in anything you can't prove. Mm. Um, but I would also call myself a Buddhist and the Buddhists, um, you know, there was, there's no deity in the Buddha. There's no God, no creator God in the, in the Buddhist tradition. The, the Buddha himself was just a dude who died. Uh, um, the, and, and basically, it's about keeping it real. Like they talk a lot about suffering and death and unhappiness. Uh, and, and basically, they embrace all the stuff that we run from as a way to get happier. It's like stop ignoring all the stuff that you're hiding from, like the fact that we're going to die and the fact that actually know that next latte is not going to make you permanently happier as a way to sort of transcend some of these inner myths and lies we tell ourselves to reach a more balanced, peaceful state of mind.
0: You mentioned earlier that there are studies that show that meditation can lead to a more generous uh, life, uh, more generosity. How has that shown up in your life too? Do you feel like you are more giving as a result of your dedication to meditating?
1: I would say more giving, but it's not like I'm the Dalai Lama or anything like that. I want to make clear that I'm I'm not. Uh, you know, uh, it's, my meditation practice has not made me Mahatma Gandhi or Desmond <laughs> Tutu, like. Um, but you know, I, I like to frame things in terms of self-interest um in fact the next book uh, the the tentative title for the next book i want to write is called the self-interested Case for not being an asshole um and <laughs> because i actually think that compassion generosity kindness all of these venerated traits uh which when discussed often just make us feel guilty because we realize we're not doing this stuff actually the right way to think about it and this is the way the buddhists think about it is as something that will make you happier and so when it comes to generosity for example Think about what it's like in the moment when you do something simple like holding the door open for somebody else. What does that feel like if you're paying attention? It feels good. That feeling is infinitely, and I mean infinitely scalable. And so generosity, without being stupid, I'm not saying you give all your money away, but generosity of all varieties, so emotional, uh, financial, uh, it, it feels good and you can do it uh, it's not like the, you can compare it to something like ice cream. Ice cream is awesome, but would you want ice cream all day, every day for seven days? You wouldn't, uh, generosity, however, you can do all day, every day for seven days. And again, I'm not talking about giving away all your money. I'm talking right. about service to other people. Time. Um, so yes. At time compliments, emotional support. You can build a very, <laughs> a limitlessly happy life, meaningful life doing this stuff.
0: Well, sure, and it sounds almost effortless and a uh, a natural alineation because if you are meditating and if one of the benefits to that is getting out of your own head and kind of being more aware and having this consciousness of the of your surroundings, then you're you're going to naturally show up for other people, and it's not going to seem like an effort. It's just now just how you sort of see the world now. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, look, the it's not like – I know plenty of people who meditate and continue to be assholes, so um, <laughs> it's not like – They're
0: not doing uh, it right. They're just taking naps. Uh, <laughs>
1: I'm kidding. It, you know, the human beings are complicated and, you know, these tendencies toward um, self-centeredness, stinginess, they run deep. Um, and so I, I, I want to – that's why I really – was adamant that the first book be called 10% happier, even though my publisher tried to bar, bargain me up to some higher figure. Um, because I, I don't think you can expect that you're going to be miraculously um, uh, Christ-like as a, as a, as a consequence of doing a little bit of meditation, but it just boosts your, your kindness quotient, you know, and because it become you start to see that it feels better not to be an asshole. You know, like If you're paying attention, if you're in a robust uh, shit-talking discussion with a friend of yours, gossiping session, where it's really getting nasty, what does that feel like? After a while, it feels like you want to take a bath in Purell. And so you just become disincentivized to do that kind of thing. What does it feel like when you ignore homeless people on the street? It doesn't feel good. So does it feel better maybe to go to the bank once in a while and get get a, a couple hundred dollars in ones and just keep those in your pocket as a way to... Uh, hand those out. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've tried that. I've been doing that for a couple of years. It's a great way to make your life more pleasant.
0: Yeah. That living in New York, that never numbs you. It just, you're, it's always stings you when you see someone who is helpless and, uh, I, well, that's a good practice. Yeah, I'm going to start an doing answer.
1: that. Hmm. There's an answer. Just give
0: them a couple bucks. Just give them a couple of you, bucks. Yeah.
1: You may get yeah. into the discussion in your head of like, oh, well, um, What are they going to do with the money? Blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Right. They need it more than you do. Um, And by the way, at the end of the day, this is about your own self-interest. It will feel better to make eye contact and give a couple bucks to somebody than it is to go through this mental gymnastics that we do all the time of ignoring.
0: Justifying it. Right. Well, I look forward to the self-interested case for not being an asshole. I have a few people in mind I'd like to send that book to. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: people in yeah, my that's
1: my fear. <laughs> I, my fear is that people are just going to give the book to other people and not read it for themselves.
0: <laughs> I thought of you.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, Dan Harris, thank you so much and uh, looking, hope, hope, wishing you more back-to-back soul cycles and hours of meditation and more, even more success, continued success in your career. Uh, thank you for coming on So Money
1: thank you for having me and thanks for asking genuinely I do a lot of interviews and you really actually provoked a lot of thought on the issue of money and so I appreciate that thank you
0: my pleasure thank you Thanks so much again to Dan Harris for joining us. You can listen to his podcast, 10% Happier, on iTunes. Also, his website is 10percenthappier.com. He's also on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. All this info is back at somoneypodcast.com. You can click on Ask Farnoosh while you're there and send me your question for our Friday episodes. And if you are so inclined... You can ask to co-host with me. I love pulling from the audience and meeting you guys, gals, uh, voice to voice at least over Skype and uh, sharing a 30-minute session with you as we sift through our audience questions. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money.